Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, an unmitigated disaster. That's what Stephen Roach is calling China's zero-COVID policy, the impact it could have on economic growth and what it will mean for our markets here at home. Plus, a bah humbug holiday. Black Friday sales hit a record this year, but could that bright, shiny packaging be hiding a lump of coal? We dig into the numbers to find out how strong the consumer really is. And a three-decade deal. We will talk to the CEO of digital ad company Taboola about his deal with Yahoo in the state of the online ad space. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Jeff Mills. And we start off with a sea of red to kick off the week on Wall Street. The Dow dropping nearly 500 points, closing down almost a percent and a half. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq seeing even bigger losses. The moves coming as Wall Street grapples with what un- of the unrest in China over zero COVID policies and what that means for markets and supply chains. Apple down more than two and a half percent after the report uh, of the hit to production of its latest high-end iPhone could be double what was originally expected. Semi-stocks, another big lagger today. Lumen Technology shedding six percent on semiconductor. NXP and Micron also down sharply. A better outcome for casino stocks, though. China granting Wynn Resorts, Las Vegas Sands, Malco, and MGM provisional licenses to continuing operating in uh, Macau. Went up more than 4%. Malco up nearly 10%. So how much should investors gamble in stocks with China exposure? What did we see today? How much was it, uh, you know, all of the protest video that we started seeing over the weekend, Dan? Well, Mel, you called it a sea of red. And when you think about what was going on here in the U.S., I mean, the S&P 500 has rallied 15 percent over the last four or five weeks, right to that downtrend where the 200-day moving average, from a technical standpoint, it's kind of a level where it's fallen. The VIX came all the way back into that uptrend that's been in place, right, throughout this whole year. That's really been a good spot to sell stocks down near 20. You know, we had the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield go through 4% over the last couple of weeks. That 40-year wides in the 210 spread, okay, to 80 basis points. That's not something we've seen in an awful long time. And then crude oil making new 52-week lows or near 52-week lows on 2022. You put all that together and you say to yourself here, it's not that optimistic of an outlook, especially after the enthusiasm enthusiasm as we see in the stock market, the lack of panic that we see in the VIX. But what the what to me, what crude oil and what yields tenure are telling me is that the markets or parts of the market are starting to price in slower growth. So slow throw in the China situation here. And if that really is going to be a headwind for global growth as we head into 2023, then the S&P 500 down 16 and a half percent or so in the year just doesn't encapsulate what we're going to see, in my opinion, in S&P earning declines next year. So to me, I think the higher we go into year end, or if there is a rally into December, it's probably the harder we drop early next year. So basically you're saying that what's going on in China is sort of the cherry on top of the bear case. Unless you tell me that the Chinese are going to do an about face on zero COVID and then things are going to come back online in a way where you're anticipating that supply chains are not mangled and they are mangled. And that's what Apple is telling you right now. Well, definitely Apple is telling you that there, mm-hmm. for sure. But I think supply chains are actually easing up. I think we've heard it from a number of companies that, uh, and we saw this inventory glut that came from supply chains delivering before they expected to get for these uh, stores before they expected to get the goods. So I think that is helping somewhat. The thing I, I actually think 
China slowing down really does help in the inflation story. And then you get the issue, all right, well, can the Fed take their foot off of the restrictive policy a little bit? I don't know. This, we'll see how quickly this COVID, zero COVID policy gets changed or loosens up. I'm not really quite sure. I don't know. Things are very different in China. They've had this policy in place for some time. I don't know that she, after this unprecedented Congress vote, it's, right? I mean, for him to solidify power to that degree, I don't know if that, that will cause him to reverse policy. What we do know, though, is that national security is top of the agenda in this leadership team's mind, in Xi's mind in particular, Guy. And we've been saying for a long yeah. time that China is just one lockdown away from mangling our supply chains once again. And I'll put out there either a lockdown caused by COVID or a lockdown caused by military law. Whatever the cause is, we can see a real disruption. No question. And maybe that's their game all along. And Mr. Roach will speak to that. I mean, I, I definitely have posited that before. It doesn't necessarily matter. I think it just reinforces the point. In terms of the market, though, Dan hit all the salient points in terms of the 200-day moving average. We traded up to it. We traded up to the downtrend that's been in place since this time last year. Every time the VIX has gone below 21 over the last 18 or so months, it's been an opportunity to sell stocks. All those things came into place. And, oh, by the way, you know, an inverted yield curve to the tune of 80 basis points, probably headed at 1%, is just not bullish. Again, I'm not an economist, but I'm smart enough to know that's not particularly bullish in a slowing environment. So what are you willing to pay for stocks? I think this rally mirrored what we saw in the summer. It's something we've talked about happening now since the middle of October. And I think we exhausted ourselves last week and we're seeing it now today. Yeah. Jeff, your thoughts on the markets? Yeah. So I, as he does, I think Guy mentioned a lot of really important things. And I, I think the yield curve is one of these things that we ignore sort of at our own peril here. I mean, it's, it's the deepest yield curve inversion we've seen in the last 40 years. And if you go back and look, history is littered with these really sharp equity rallies with inverted yield curves that ultimately don't stick. And one of the things I can't help but focus on is that since the October low, Google, Amazon, Tesla, all negative, Microsoft lagging, Apple lagging. So, you know, the, the top of the market still feels risky to me, and that's going to drag down the overall index. And we've talked about this before, but you still need to see some valuation resetting. We've talked about uh, a name like Apple, for example. It was already in a vulnerable spot, and now you have China on top of it. It failed again at that downward sloping 200 day. It's now below the 50 day, uh, and it's a stock that's still trading at 23 times forward earnings. So, if you get this compression in, in demand for consumer electronics and other things, it's going to pressure that multiple. So, you know, you look at these levels like 120, 100 for a stock like Apple, and I think Tesla is a very similar story. Yeah. Dan, I mean, how much more should we go lower, that is, when it comes to these big cap tech names yeah. in order to reach a sort of equilibrium? I, I think to the point, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla, the five largest tech stocks in the market, five largest stocks in the market, they all guided down for the quarter that we're in right now. So if you think that we're not going to kind of retest some lows in the broad market, um, then, then those stocks are a buy. But I actually think they're probably going to lead us to a retest of the lows when we finally do have a bunch of strategists kind of throw in the towel on 2023 earnings. And one of the big reasons is that X Energy, we know that S&P earnings have not been particularly good this year. They would have been down. Now, you could 
say, well, you know, we can't prove that counterfactual, what would have happened otherwise. But we also know that the disconnect between where the commodity of crude is and where energy stocks are, if you look at the XLE large integrated and the OAH, which is the oil services names, they've made up a good part of whatever gains we're going to have in 2022. I think FactSet has been saying this now for a few weeks. If you're going to start to see that declining into Q2 of next year. So if we do see these large tech companies, they don't get back on their horse. If we do go into recession, if the stocks start discounting that, then we have a situation where stocks are very likely in Q1 of next year to retest the lows that we just made in October. In my opinion, we just have to get to a point where investors feel like the multiple on S&P earnings, they both seem fairly discounted and we're not there yet. It feels like, though, I mean, for Karen, for Karen, for Apple specifically, we know we saw a 2.6% decline today. Mm-hmm. It felt like that was based on China and, and the expectation that iPhone production would be disrupted for I don't know how long and mean however many units not sold this holiday season. Right. Fine. It seems, though, that if China all of a sudden, everything just dissipated tomorrow, that there would be a large snapback rally in Apple. It didn't necessarily, I mean, I don't know if you feel like what we saw today, the decline that we've been seeing, is a reset in expectations or if it's just specific to this situation here, which could be resolved, and then we go back higher. I'm not sure which it is. It could be a little bit of both. I mean, we always talk about this issue of, are these sales delayed or denied, denied, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that uh, in the past, when iPhone has had some issues like this, it's been delayed, not denied. But then that begs the question, to Dan's point, what is the right multiple? Let's say they get those sales back. What is the right multiple in this market? Do they deserve a premium multiple? Absolutely. How much of a premium? I'm not really sure. I'm sticking with my Apple, though. I feel like, uh, you know, it's uh, it's definitely not my biggest bet. I've lost money in the other fangs, m- much more so than Apple. But I do feel like we will see those sales come through. Yeah. Do we need to reset expectations a whole lot more, Jeff Mills, on big cap tech earnings expectations? I think we need to reset earnings expectations really across the board. I mean, all we've seen so far is is multiple compression. And I think you're going to see a transition from people worrying about interest rates and inflation to worrying about earnings. That's why I think you're seeing relative underperformance for from the likes of Apple, for example. You know, Carter had a chart flagging this maybe even over the weekend or last week. But just talking about Apple, not only just from an absolute perspective, but relative to the overall market. And that relative weakness tells me that investors are starting to look elsewhere because they are worried about the demand picture. You know, whether it's China as the catalyst, you know, we can make that argument. But I think what's going to continue to pressure the stock lower is the demand side of the equation and ultimately what that means for earnings. All right. Our next guest calls China's zero COVID policy an unmitigated disaster. Economist Stephen Roach is a former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. He's now a Yale University senior fellow. And Stephen has a new book coming out tomorrow. So you can all get it tomorrow. Accidental Conflict, America, China and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, always great to get your take. Um, What's going on here in China? What is Xi's next move or what do you think it should be at this point? I mean, he can either let this sort of play out or he can really crack down. What do you think happens? He's not going to drop his zero COVID policy. He's going to tweak it on the edges. But autocrats uh, can't afford ever to lose face. And for him to admit that this is an absurd, impractical, uh, harsh policy uh, is not in his DNA. But, you know, he'll reduce the quarantine um, uh, restrictions a bit, and there'll be some easing off. But what he's got to get is a break from um, uh, the highly transmissible Omicron, and um, you no, know, that's that's unlikely to happen for quite some time. I mean, 
everybody knows how transmissible uh, these variants are. I finally got hit by it two weeks ago myself. And so, you know, it's, it's absurd to think that he's going to re- reduce this policy at a time when the, the, um, uh, the transmissibility is surging. Do you think that it gets to the point, though, because we, we do know that Xi's top priority is national security and that he's you know, willing to sacrifice some degree of economic growth for that, the security of, of just not, not just you know, his people, but security of the party. Um, and in that goal, Stephen, do you think that he enforces military law? Do we see this escalate to the point of a Tiananmen Square, for instance? No, we don't. I think mm-hmm. uh, you know, every newspaper that I looked at today, I probably looked at five or six of them, and they all had the Tiananmen Square comparison, uh, you know, in the uh, the lead paragraph. Uh, Tiananmen Square was triggered uh, largely by uh, a, a young generation uh, whose political champion, uh, the former leader and reformer Hu Yaobang, uh, had died in April of 1989, and and the the, the movement became. Uh, a, a movement that was focused on these political issues. Xi Jinping, as you know, has no political opposition. He took care of that in the recent uh, party congress. So this isn't about politics. It's about a understandably frustrated and angry uh, population who is suffering uh, job loss and uh, economic hard- hardship out of a re- from a ridiculous uh, COVID policy. So he doesn't admit that he's wrong. He tweaks around the edges. Things largely go as they are. And that's that's it, Stephen. I mean, that seems to be so limited. I mean, it does seem like these protesters are of a younger generation. They did not witness the the miracle of economic growth that he shepherded, you know, in the 90s or so. They were not young enough to remember. And so I'm I'm just wondering if it just ends here, because some are even calling for his, you know, stepping down, which would be you know, an offense that would be jailable in China. Yeah, I, I wouldn't bet on uh, uh, the autocrat stepping down. I don't think he's going to uh, call for a martial law. I think uh, he, he does have at his disposal a far more repressive and surveil- uh, uh, surveillance technology than was evident back in, in 1989. So he certainly knows how uh, to restrict the discourse uh, and the um, the concerns that are being expressed uh, by the protesters. As I said, he will tweak some of the restrictions at the margin uh, and um, uh, hope that, as we've seen in this country, that uh, these the incidence of these variances ebb and they flow and that he'll get a break as Omicron uh, starts to recede. But um, you know, as, as I write in my book, you know, it could have been so much better for China if they had collaborated with us on um, uh, health care practices and, uh, and learn from our experience in developing um, these uh, mRNA uh, vaccines. If they had vaccinated their vulnerable elderly population, he wouldn't be dealing with this. But he doesn't want to collaborate and cooperate with us. And we don't want to co- collaborate and cooperate with him. And so that's why I'm worried about this uh, conflict escalation that I write about uh, in my book. So does this change at all what's going on in China right now? Does this change at all the backdrop for companies doing business in China, in your view? I think it makes any company more mindful of 
China concentration risks. And, um, you know, you've been talking about Apple here. Um, uh, you know, Apple's a classic case where it had bet 100% on the production and assembly platform uh, in Guangdong province. And lo and behold, it's now starting, just starting to make iPhones uh, in India. So supply chain diversification, weaning yourselves just from uh, relying on the world's largest and most efficient offshore production platform doesn't make as much sense today as it as it did before this uh, conflict uh, and COVID-related disruptions gripped the Chinese economy. All right, Stephen, always good to see you. Thank you very much. We'll all be looking for your book out tomorrow. Stephen Roach. All right. So what do we so what do we do in terms of thinking about a Nike, a Starbucks? We've been talking about this for a long time, but it seems like there are more and more examples again and again and again of the risk that might not necessarily be priced in, Guy. Yeah, I think it's a broader market story as well, but you're right to mm-hmm. focus on those stocks. And I still think Apple's got the you know gigantic crosshairs on their collective back. Uh, and the chances, listen, maybe it's tail risk, maybe it's 10, 15 percent. But you know, if this thing escalates, China's, uh, Apple's going to be in the crosshairs of China without question. And just to throw Apple in there one more time, I mean, don't discount now a very public feud seemingly going on with Elon Musk uh, in terms of his role at, at Twitter now in terms of Apple as well. So there's so many headwinds they're facing, China not the least of which. And I don't think the broader market is fully encapsulating what could potentially happen there. All right. Coming up, Bob Iger back in charge, updating Disney employees on the changes he is making, the things he's keeping the same, what he had to say at his first town hall meeting since reclaiming the company's top spot. Plus, shake it off. Why one analyst wasn't harboring any bad blood over the Taylor Swift ticket fiasco. The Live Nation love story when Fast Money returns. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bob Iger holding his first town hall since returning to the CEO position at Disney. During the private event, Iger took questions from employees and confirmed the hiring freeze laid out by his predecessor. He confirmed that that will stay in place. He also said the company needs to focus on making its streaming business profitable. Shares at Disney closed down over 3 percent. 
today. Um, there's also a headline that just crossed on Bloomberg saying that Shanghai uh, Disneyland will uh, be closed starting on Tuesday. Uh, Jeff Mills, a lot going on with Disney. Do you like this, uh, this CEO? Do you think that the 3% move today was just overall markets dragging it down? Do you think there's a concern about China? What was behind that? I, mean, I think it's a little bit of both. You have to attribute some of it to China. But I think, you know, overall, the stock has been pressured since its last earnings release. But, you know, overall, you know, I like Bob Iger. I think he has a, a track record here. I think maybe figuring out where some of the content goes in terms of its platforms, cutting costs, like you mentioned. But I did like hearing the discussion about profitability during the town hall today. I think that that's super important. So whether you're talking about the ad based tier generating a higher revenue per user than the ad free version, whether you're talking about an increase in subscription subscription fees. I think all of these are very important, even if it means slower subscriber growth. So I think next quarter will be very telling. I think we'll see some of that impact in December. But overall, the question in my mind, I think the question in the market's mind is, does this focus on profitability pull forward that 2024 Disney plus plus profitability estimate? I think that's the key. Having streaming become cash flow positive is very important. Can the company finally start paying a dividend again? Uh, That's key. Uh, The stock is at the same price it was February of 2015. And back then it was trading at 20 times forward, right? Right now it's trading at uh, 22 times forward. So what is the right premium for streaming? I think that's another really important question. It's certainly not 40 PE turns, what it was in 2021, but two seems reasonable to me. So there's certainly the possibility for near-term volatility, but the valuation seems okay here. Yeah, when I first saw the headlines cross coming out of the meeting, it was like Iger focuses that the company is going to focus on creativity, which made me think, oh, lack of a focus on profitability. But, but then, Jeff, um, what you had talked about came up, and that's basically giving up this dream of growth at all costs for the streaming side of the business, which had been the mentality for a lot of these uh, services that had started up. So with that out of the way, Disney seems like a, a much more stable sort of on a stay more stable trajectory in terms of profitability. Um, Karen, what do you what do you think of the changes here? What well, came out of the meeting? Growth at all costs is a lot more expensive than it used to be. Yes. Because of debt. Right. Mm-hmm. And they are not without debt from that Fox acquisition going back. Th- I don't know how three or four years already. I think, you know, for morale, that's something that's really important that he's back. But I think that uh, Chapak also wanted to get to profitability. He was willing to spend more in streaming, but for the rest of the businesses, he really did want to, you know, he, he really wanted to improve the businesses. I, I don't know. I feel like this valuation here, it's fine. It's, it's a premium. It deserves somewhat of a premium. They are Disney. Uh, but I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that, you know, the whole space, particularly the streaming space, that is, the whole space is really under a complete revaluation. I don't know who's going to survive. I think there'll be some consolidation. I don't know that Disney's not going to be consolidated. They'd be the consolidator. But I don't know that they're in a position to do that right now. Yeah, and he said he's not going to sell to Apple, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it must have been a question about that. And let's see if they actually made a bid, if he would say no. I don't think so. But, um, you know, this is also probably has to do with the box office. It was really bad. They had a big um, release this weekend um, of one of their um, animated shows. I'll just say this about what they did on the content front as the launch of Disney Plus. I mean, they put out a lot of great content over the last couple of years um, from Market or from Marvel, from Lucas, from all those sorts of things. And they probably did what they needed to do to establish a beachhead and compete with Netflix, which was known for that. It was also an arms race when you think about what Apple is doing and Amazon and Hulu and some of these other streaming networks. So I think that investors should be happy that this guy who was the original architect for all of this plan is now focused on kind of fixing it or getting it to the next stage. And I'll just say this, the night that we had 
had the deal announced or we were talking about it on um, Fast Money, I think all of us were like, it probably goes lower with the market. I don't think it probably acts worse than some of the names in the space here. But this stock will have an eight handle on it again and could go back to those March 2020 lows, which was somewhere just above 80 bucks. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Analysts got a blank space, baby, and they're writing Live Nation. Why they think this stock will shake off the recent Taylor ticket fiasco. Plus, Black Friday boom. Retail sales coming in hot. And Cyber Monday still underway. But with inflation lingering, is the consumer really that strong? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, a real Wall Street love story on Live Nation. Analysts at City upgrading the stock to a buy, saying the company's risk reward looks more reasonable after the recent Taylor Swift Ticketmaster fiasco. City did, however, cut its price target for the stock by 9% to $82. Analysts also laying out a 20% likelihood that Live Nation is forced to split into two firms. Um, you've been in this for a long time, Karen. So what do you think? Yes. Um, so there's two things going on. There's the Taylor debacle, mm-hmm. right, which we all know, 3.5 billion orders. Um, things didn't work out well. Not, but Ticketmaster was uh, pilloried for sure. However, this was extraordinary, extraordinary demand. And Ticketmaster was not the only one who sold tickets for this was not the only ticket supplier. Oh. Other, others did as well. You haven't heard one thing about them. They had right. problems just as bad, if not worse. But Ticketmaster is, you know, the 900, 800 pound gorilla. That, this, is, this is, you know, a little bit of a black eye, but it's kind of over right now. There were too many ticket demands for Taylor. But the more important thing is the DOJ issue. Right. For a long time, people have been since actually the merger in 2010 or 12, people have been upset about them owning tickets and venues and having too much power. I think if if this guy does think 20 percent likelihood that that deal is undone, then I think it's kind of you can't own it. I think the chance of that is lower than 20 percent. But um, so I'm still long. It is not cheap by any stretch. They are in an extraordinary position. I do think that post-pandemic, things really came back hard, but I think they'll continue to grow. Yeah. Guy? Yeah, I mean, to Karen's point, trades are probably 55 times next year's numbers. You know, maybe you have 30% EPS growth, which is good, but it's still an expensive stock. And what I find really interesting is the, the broad range of price targets in the analyst community. It goes from 70 on the low end to 140 on the high end, I think the average price target is 106. I think you probably, with the with the DOJ stuff, you know, maybe having to go in front of all those things might have marked a short-term bottom. So if you're looking for a trading stock, you might have it. But I think it's hard to make an investment thesis in this environment given the valuation and given some of the hurdles they face. 
It's a pretty um, courageous call on the part of the city when there's so much uncertainty ahead. And, and there are, to be sure, um, congressional hearings on the whole matter because all these Congress people are, are uh, you know, outraged that their constituents couldn't buy Taylor Swift tickets, Jeff Mills. What do you think of this call? Yeah, so I agree with Guy in the sense that I think you can play it for a trade here. It's it's something like 30% below the 200-day. It's right at that $70 level, which has been long-term support. So I think you can play it for a trade up to at least 80 in the near term. And, and I actually like it you know, longer term. I like the business there. But my issue over the next 12 months is that this is a cyclical stock. I, I really feel like there, there are no two ways about it. And you can't really draw a straight line between the 2022 business fundamentals and what we're likely to see in 2023 and 2024. You can chart this stock's relative performance versus manufacturing PMI. And those things move in lockstep. So it wouldn't surprise me if this was an underperformer in 2023. Coming up, the real read on retail. Black Friday sales showing up strong, but is there trouble under the surface? We'll dig into that next. And speaking of retail, we are checking out the action in Dollar General as options traders pile in ahead of earnings where they see that stock heading next. Fast Money's back right after this. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks falling hard as COVID protests in China weigh on the markets. The Dow dropping nearly 500 points. The S&P and Nasdaq both falling more than one and a half percent. The spread between two and 10-year treasuries narrowing slightly after crossing the 80 basis point level earlier in the day, a fresh 40-year low. But there were some bright spots in this sea of red. Ulta and Merck both hitting all-time highs during the session. Meantime, Black Friday sales scored a win for retailers, at least on the surface. Online sales a day after Thanksgiving topping $9.1 billion. That's a record, according to Adobe Analytics. But what's that number look like when you account for inflation? Let's bring in Joe Lavornia of SMBC Nico Securities America. He's also the national, former National Economic Council chief economist. So, Joe, we are talking about this. We're like, oh, on the yeah. surface, all the headlines are cheery. The consumer's still strong. Well, when you think about what inflation has done to prices and you think about mentally backing that out, it would seem to me that there should be a decline. Yes. Well, look, the nominal numbers look okay because the prices are higher. So the units times the higher prices gives you good nominal numbers, the $9 billion. And it may turn out that November consumer spending looks great. And uh, November 2007 looked good. And December 2007 looked good. And it turned out that that was the peak. The economy entered recession in January. There are three factors that are going to hurt consumer spending going forward. Uh, certainly one is higher rates. The uh, change in interest rates has been the largest in 25, 30 years. You look at mortgage rates. Secondly, you still have very high food and energy costs. Headline inflation is running above wage growth. And the third piece, which is important, is wealth. Households are losing in the stock market, they're losing in the bond market, and their home prices are slowing. All three of those factors, Melissa, suggest to me that the economy is going to be a lot weaker next year. What we started to hear from retailers also was um, less of a use uh, on the part of the consumer of debit and cash and more on credit at a time when obviously the rates on credit cards are through the, I mean, they're through the roof before, but now even more so. I'm wondering how you factor that in in terms of viewing the consumer's health as they lever up in a time when rates are rising still. Well, they're levering up in part because the average consumer's real wage is declining and credit cards are an easy way to fund sort of a lifestyle change. People want to get back to normal. I was happy to come into the studio. Hadn't been a long time. Everything has been remote. And people are still... 
think of that excess, the vestiges of that excess demand are still there. But at some point, you know, if the economy weakens, as I expect, and the labor market slows, you'll see credit card debt go up higher as people try to fund that spending a bit longer. But eventually it'll turn down. And the fact that there's been so much debt usage, to me, is a problem. It's not a sign of health. Yeah, Joe, I appreciate, obviously, you coming on. $5 trillion now consumer debt approaching, if not through it. North of a trillion in credit card debt in the United States. I mean, these are astronomical numbers that you still have people come on and talk about the health of the U.S. consumer. What's the disconnect there? I don't think there's the disconnect so much, Guy. I think, that, again, we were coming out of a pandemic and I, all the lags and the normal relationships have been askew. But uh, I don't see how the consumer, given what I laid out, is going to be able to sustain these rates. If you look at household net wealth through the second quarter, the Fed's data show over a $6 trillion decline in household net wealth. So you have $6 trillion decline in net wealth, $5 trillion in debt. Uh, I think the issue, Guy, is that the spending is contemporaneous. It tells you kind of where you are now. It's not forward-looking. If you look at things like consumer sentiment, expectations, which are in the index of leading indicators, those are in recessionary. Those are at recessionary levels. So the question is, how bad is the downturn, not whether we're going to have one? So, Joe, let me ask you, okay, we accept we're going into a slow, slower economy. What do you think is going to happen to credit quality? Obviously, it gets worse, but how much worse do you think it gets? I would just correct you, Karen, and say it's going to be a contracting economy, not like okay. we had in the first half of the year where the contracting economy where we lose jobs and, and um, the unemployment rate goes up. Um, if we look at the Fed senior loan officer survey, we're seeing banks starting to tighten lending standards, uh, both to commercial and on the commercial industrial side, the commercial real estate side, and, and households. So it could get a lot worse. It kind of depends, one, on what happens with food and energy. Do those come down? That will lower inflation. It will add liquidity into the system. It's like a tax cut. That'll help because the Fed then can ease rates as consumers feel more flush. And then what's the Fed's response? Do they actually continue to raise rates and then, importantly, keep rates at a restrictive level? My view is they won't. Jay Powell will flinch. When the labor market weakens, I think they'll fold and fold pretty quickly. If they do, you may have higher long-term inflation, but that'll help risk assets, especially on the credit side. Because right now, Karen, we're pulling a significant amount of liquidity out of the market. The balance sheet unwind has just, has just, just started. The correlation on a change basis between the S&P and the balance sheet is about 94. And right now, based on liquidity trends, S&Ps have not hit their low for the cycle. So to me, there's a lot still that has to come through the system. And as that happens, credit trends will get worse because, as you know, credit and equities tend to be interconnected. What's the magic number in your view where Jay Powell flinches? When we start to lose 150, 200,000 jobs a month, when there is, this is a weird way to put it, when there's confidence or concern, rather, the unemployment rate is going to go to five and possibly higher. And that could happen with the rate in the low fours if the job numbers start to show a couple hundred thousand loss a month. Joe, good to see you Thank in you. person. Thank, Thank you. For you. Thank you for having me. Thank it. you, everybody. Joe Lavornia, what it, do you think? It seems like that's the number. It's the unemployment yeah. number. It's the last piece of this whole puzzle. Joe just talked about how we've seen risk assets come down as rates have gone up, what negative wealth effect that's uh, happened here. And I think we're all sitting here waiting. Listen, there is a silver lining scenario where maybe the recession is not that deep and maybe unemployment doesn't go up meaningfully because of some of the issues that we've been dealing with for a while. And immigration is a big part of it. So maybe it is different this time as it relates to the unemployment. But it seems like very likely he seems very convicted that we are going to see a 
contraction. So recession is going to come. It just depends how bad it is. And when do risk assets, specifically stocks, start to discount that? Yeah. Jeff, how did you feel when you, when you saw those uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday numbers start rolling in? Were you, were you happy that the consumer seemed stronger? Did you raise your eyebrow? It's been an eyebrow raiser, and I, we've talked about this time and time again. It's the less stuff at higher prices story. Uh, you see it all over the place. We looked at a chart related to this months ago, and it looked at nominal sales that were trending higher and re- real sales that were flat. And now you can see really specific examples of it. You know, Pepsi, I think, is a great example. Overall food and beverage market, you've seen about 14% price hikes. What's Pepsi's revenue growth? About 15%. You see the same thing in Clorox. You even see it in names like Amazon. So I still think you are seeing the less stuff at higher prices, and that's what's driving some of these numbers. And that's why I continue to favor some of the discount retailers. I know we're going to talk about Dollar Gen in a second, but um, that, that's where I am on the whole consumer story. All right, let's talk about Dollar Gen. One trader making a big bet against it as it gears up to report earnings on Thursday. Mike Coe has the action. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so Dollar General traded well above uh, average daily options volume today. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 5.5% by the end of the week. That's in line with the movement that we've seen over the past eight reported quarters. Uh, the most active trading was going on in the December 240, 230 put spread. We saw a block of 709 of those trade for a little over a dollar and a half. Uh, ultimately, about 2,200 of those traded by the end of the day. The buyer of those put spreads is targeting a move below that 240 put strike by at least the premium that they spent and maybe as low as that lower $230 strike price. That would be a decline of about 6 to 10 percent over the next two and a half weeks or so. All right. Thanks, Mike, for that. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. We are back on Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, shares of digital ad company Tabula topping the tape today. Stick around to find out what is behind this massive move higher. The CEO will join us live to discuss, plus, a crude oil conundrum. Prices bouncing back after touching lows of the year. What is behind this move and how to play it next? Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil staging a big reversal today, closing higher after hitting its lowest levels of the year earlier in the day. Rumors of potential OPEC plus production cut helping erase early losses. Energy stocks, meantime, closing largely in the red. Exxon, Chevron, Conoco all ending the day lower. So what's behind this uh, divergence? Uh, Guy? Yeah, we've talked about it for a while. I know Jeff's going to speak to it. I think the, the biggest part of it is crude can sort of go sideways to slightly lower in this environment, the fact that so many of these companies are so much better run and their balance sheets are so much more pristine than they've been historically. Uh, the irony, of course, is ESG and the Biden administration is probably the best that ever happened to these energy stocks. So I think the disconnect is there. Now, at a certain point, if crude continues to go lower, it's going to have an effect. But right now, at least, it still seems to be in a bit of a sweet spot. Yeah, Jeff, you were talking about this on our conference call earlier today. Yeah, I know we just had the chart up, and and I think it's it's super interesting. Like, if you look prior to the shale revolution, the correlation between energy stocks and oil was pretty low. And then all of a sudden, post-shale, profitability took a backseat for a lot of these companies. They were focused on production growth, and they became highly correlated with the commodity. And to Guy's point, I think you've seen a reversal of that. That correlation is sort of back down to those pre-shale boom levels, and I think it absolutely has to do with the capital discipline, uh, these companies being less impacted by the commodity. And you see it now. You know, the energy sector relative to the S&P is still holding up relatively well. Exxon, Chevron holding key levels. So even though you've seen some volatility recently, even though the commodities 
he's been bouncing around. Uh, I still think the stocks are a reasonably good place to be. Yeah, I don't. And I think that spread is going to resolve itself by maybe crude going lower to just staying put and the energy stocks so coming in. you're on his call. I missed his call. But I will tell you that I think that a lot of I think it's a very crowded trade. And I think technically it's at a tough spot. And I just think that we're likely to see some people kind of find different places to put their money in 2023. Coming up, Yahoo's 30 year deal and the software stock surging on the partnership. The CEO will join us next to break down the digital ad space. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of ad tech firm Taboola topping the tape today, soaring more than 43% for the stock's the best day since going public in June of last year. Internet giant Yahoo announcing it'll take a near 25% stake of the company, part of a 30-year agreement which gives Taboola exclusive rights to native ads across Yahoo's digital brands. Here to take us inside the deal is Adam Singolda, CEO of Taboola. Adam, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, it must be a crazy few days cooking their turkey and then doing this deal. What's behind the 30-year number? That seems like an extraordinarily long time for any company in any industry, let alone uh, an ad tech company in a vastly, quickly changing internet digital ad space. I mean, I would say not long enough. But so, I mean, you know, taking a step back, you know, when you look at uh, where we are, I mean, I think today is a, is a big win for the open web, for journalism, for the good guys. You know, we're trying to build an alternative to social networks that kind of going through flux these days with privacy and all those issues. So when you think about the open web and publishers and journalism and the importance they play, you know, for the future of our children, uh, you know, having a trusted environment when consumers can learn things, not on TikTok, um, 30 years is just, you know, one step forward looking into the future saying we're committed to how the future will look like. Adam, is there anything about the current um, digital ad environment that kind of informs this deal? Why I, I know why you wanted to partner up with Yahoo. It's a massive audience there. But is there anything that's going on right now? We've seen some of the largest platforms really pull back on spending, right? We're seeing ad spending in general kind of plateau or decline after, you know, 10 years of just gangbusters growth. I mean, scale and matter as we know it. I mean, when you, when you think about Google and Facebook and Amazon, they have so much scale. It's so much easier to spend with them. You open an account and it just works. In the open web, it's very fragmented. It's, it's a 64 plus billion dollar market, but it's so difficult to spend. So as part of this partnership on the other side of it, Taboola will be around two and a half billion dollars in revenue. So that's a huge step forward, making advertisers just a little bit easier for them to say, we want to buy the publishers, the open web in a safe environment for consumers. So for us, you know, this partnership is so important to liberate advertisers to find an alternative to social networks. Hey, Jeff Mills here. So just a quick question in terms of kind of what you're seeing overall in the digital ad space. You know, I feel like, you know, potential ad dollars going less toward brand advertising, more toward sort of direct response. Are, are you seeing that? And, and maybe talk talk us through what companies that may be having an impact on. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good question. I'm seeing three things. First is what we just talked about, which is privacy issues going into contextual. And I think the future will be much driven by not who I am as a person, by, but rather what am I reading as a proxy for who I am. So that's one. We just talked about that one. And the second one is exactly what you said, which is especially now in times of recession, we're seeing the value of attribution and knowing that the dollar I'm you know, putting here, what's the value it creates for me as a, as a client, as a business? So performance advertising is much more resilient versus brand advertising. And I think everyone here has learned, you know, they've learned a very important lesson as to how important it is to know how to spend those dollars and you know, drive towards performance advertising. And I would say the third one, I think, which is more related to the pandemic is e-commerce. 
I mean, it's so much nicer now to go to the New York Times wire cutter and check out the review and say, I trust them, I'm going to buy that product. So these are the three trends I'm seeing kind of in the advertising market at large. And that's a great opportunity for all of us here, you know, at CNBC and the open web. But at large, is there a contraction in those dollars? Well, I don't think so. I think, it's, I think the time spent is going up. I think Apple is putting news on every Apple device. I'm very optimistic about people spending more time with, with news and trusting information, and as such, more opportunity for advertisers to spend. Also, I think we're going to see a huge wave of millions of advertisers who just cannot buy social anymore because it's too expensive because privacy has been making it hard for them to succeed with Apple and IDFA and all those things. They will look for other places to spend. So I think, in fact, we'll see demand increase over time because of those issues. Plus, consumers want to find trusted sources of information so they'll spend more time. Just quickly, we're almost out of time, but it sounds like the dollars are moving away from a meta then. Well, I bet there's going to be a huge opportunity for um, contextual advertising, open web, trusted, okay. you know, stuff like that. That's your nice way. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there, Adam. Thank you. Adam Singel, the CEO of Taboola. Uh, Karen, you're a meta shareholder. I am. Thanks for pointing that out. Yes, I'm a meta <laughs> shareholder. It's been very, very painful. You know, I always come back to it. It hasn't been right, the valuation there. Um, I do think that the ad market is growing less slowly, maybe even maybe even shrinking a little bit as possible. However, mm-hmm. it's still enormous. And if we see Zuckerberg do a little more on the cost side, I think that'll be very good for the stock. Yeah, and to the point, it's a secular shift that's just going to continue on. Whether it grows at the pace in which it did over the last 10 years, I suspect we see it slow down a little bit. But it's going to be a trend that you want to invest in for decades to come. Up next, final trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Guy. Look at that good-looking man with Karen Feinerman. Lower rates means higher utilities. Con Edison. Jeff Mills. I think Genuine Park looks pretty interesting here. It's a little overbought, but I like it on pullbacks. I think it's a good defensive name for this market. Karen, you have a special guest today. I do. I have my son Jack here for Thanksgiving week. We've talked it over. Jack, what do you got? great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, We're really excited about Lyft. They've turned the corner on profitability, and I know some of you out there are a little bit nervous, but now is a great time to buy. Well done, Dan. As Guy would say, hashtag stud. Um, XLE, (laughs) not a fan here, I'd be a seller. You did that almost as well as Connor, Tim's son. Yes, six, seven. Six. (laughs) Just joking, you did great. Thanks for watching Fast. Kramer starts right now. (laughs) This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.